Kalimera. Actually, Kalinixta, because it's evening. Yeah. Say that again. How does that work? Kalinixta, I believe, is a good night. So it's yeah. evening. It's, it's sort of afternoon for you or morning, and it's evening for me here. In Greece, uh, the land of what the bedrock of democracy, <laughs> is it? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. And you are, you're in a gallery or something? Oh, yeah. I'm doing a residency. So um, I'm at my studio and it's, the studio is located in Kipseli, this neighborhood called Kipseli, which uh, has an interesting history. I think it was quite upscale in like 19th century and then, you know, went through different changes during 20th century. But in the 70s, it was kind of a bohemian hangout. It was known for like a place, you know, there's a sort of a street called Fokionos Negri where, you know, actors and musicians, just the kind of bohemian elite used to hang out. Mm. And then it kind of went into decline again. And now it's sort of having a, a kind of comeback. There was an article about it in Time Out London, I believe, a few weeks ago. It's interesting just to think about architecture and these neighborhoods, you know, how they're, how people feel about them, you know, how they treat them and yeah. who lives there. And um, yeah, there's an, actually um, a large Ethiopian community that kind of lives um, they have there's a few shops and a restaurant just down the street from me, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, didn't think that I was going to find a lot of Ethiopian food when I came mm. to Greece, but hey. Yeah, I mean, there's a long history of cultural interaction in the that region, particularly right the Mediterranean. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a lot of marble surrounding you. You said <laughs> yes, yes. I keep mentioning the marble. I think it is shocking because you know I'm coming from Los Angeles, um, where marble is really seen as a a sign of luxury, you know, a sign of affluence. Right. And here it's ubiquitous. I'm, in fact, you know, I'm, I'm, my feet are on this marble floor and it's not a big deal. In my apartment, you know, the kitchen has a marble floor. The balcony is marble. The hallway is marble. Marble is basically everywhere. I think everyone knows that Greek is in a kind of difficult economic situation at the moment. Yeah. Um, so, and so it just seems odd. You know, my brain hasn't adjusted to marble not being a luxurious substance. And like I'm surrounded by marble, but marble is tagged. Marble is, you know, located inside places that are not at all, you know, well-to-do, kind of impoverished maybe. So just like marble is mm. just out and about everywhere. And right. and someone actually, I had coffee with someone today. And, and again, I mentioned marble because the table was marble. And, you know, he said, he was like, oh, yes, yes, my balcony is also marble. Well, it's marble underneath this covering that it has. And, you know, that's kind of a ne- next level where marble is not even the... Uh you know, something that you want to be seeing, you know, in fact, right. you want to cover up the marble because it's just, yeah. it's just constantly amusing me. I've only been here for a week, so I think maybe I'll get over it eventually, but I'm still impressed. It's beautiful. Please don't. Okay. No, marble is the best. I don't think that it's any way to get around it, you know? I'd like to hear someone complain about it at some point. I feel like that would be... Actually, someone did. Actually, the same person said, yes, but my kid, you know, my whole, my also like my apartment floor is marble and it's like really cold in winter. And I feel for them, mm. it, it definitely is cold. That's true. And echoey. It's true. Sure, yeah. Yes. As you can hear now. Right. Well, I mean, I think that was a big part of the modernist architecture to try to take away some of the discomfort of the Victorian architecture here, at least, because it was so, uh, it was cold. And I think that heat and comfort and like, you know, fucking tile ceilings, you know, like drop ceilings were ways to make people feel more cozy in the 60s and 70s and like adding carpet to everything. Mm. That sense of like architectural starkness, like that stone and marble you know, gave people and that sense of like poverty related to that because of being cold and hungry. I think that was part of it. But yeah, we went so far the other carpeted route that like in the land of like plastic everywhere, I think we were looking for sure. you know, material, like essential material or whatever. Yeah. I think concrete became that essential material. But I mean, also, I mean, it's also just the geological reality. You know, there's just simply more mm. marble here than in America. It was just there. Right. Imported. I brought some marble with me from L.A., as a kind of joke, um, so, <laughs> so yeah. here with me. Uh, before I knew how big the joke would be, and now I have this little piece of marble. Did they? Did you put the marble on top of the other marble and see what happened? I'm. I, it's sort of. It's waiting in my suitcase. It's waiting for its moment oh. to be revealed. It, it may become. I wonder if it feels awful. shy. It's like Maybe. shy surrounded all the real marble. But I think it's, you know, but I think actually what happened is that marble was exported to LA and then I brought it back. Oh, it's homeland. It's come back. So it's maybe, if anything, it's like maybe feeling cozy. 
I hope. Yeah. It hears like the sounds of its origins. It's like perking up a little bit. She's geological brothers. Yeah. How are you? I'm okay. How are you in New York? I feel really comfortable talking about uh, geology and I'm thinking it's because my dad is a geologist and Yay. and that yeah a lot of the reason why I live in New York is because of architecture and materials like the way buildings are built and mm-hmm. age kind of in a similar way like I like living in older buildings um because you know of growing up in a 1970s constructed world yeah in Texas um I'm okay I just took the AC out of my window and closed the window so Oh, I now have this whole relationship with silence, with like shutting out the city noise. And I didn't even know that it was such a part of my consciousness until I shut the window. Mm. And I went camping a little while ago, a couple weeks ago, and it was so silent in the woods. And I haven't been camping in a long time. So it was it, the depth of the silence was kind of amazing and very calming. I had all these very intense dreams in the woods I think because of the silence or something yeah like you can hear your subconscious at last yeah it kind of comes out the city tunes it out yeah yeah not not chased away an internet um, mobile probably you didn't have your phone so. right no I didn't my phone was like dead and not having service anyway oh, so listless listless phone I love that well yeah and you know we talk about this all the time and I always have this strong need for essentialist living and kind of going back and when I actually got it I thought I would be just like uncomfortable and afraid or something but I was so calmed and it was really true that that's what I needed but I was really really cold <laughs> It was so oh. cold. It was like we went upstate and it was like super cold. So that was an interesting part where I was like, okay, you know, a lot of this modern life is to take care of the body, which when when it feels uncomfortable, it like affects you in different ways. So right. controlling the environment. Yeah, I shouldn't romanticize the medieval because they were oh, yeah. pretty uncomfortable compared to the way I live my life. So that's true. Yeah. So today we were considering magical thinking in times of of uncertainty and um, economic uncertainty as one of our main concerns. And we kind of alluded to it a little bit with like, you know, Greece in, in dire economic straits, but like yeah. surrounded by marble and, and particularly religious ideas or spiritual ideas as like a balm for uncertainty and anxiety. Um, it's a theme yeah. that we have, like the relationship between spirituality, wellness, and economic panic. It's true. And that's not to dismiss the, the very real kind of um, anxieties that economic uncertainty brings about. But I think we're sure. talking about that we need a space. And it's true. We need both a space kind of for the spirit and a space for the body. We do need to be sheltered. Yeah. I mean, I somehow feel that it's questionable, but that the economic concerns prevail. And we feel like a kind of economy is defining to... Like sort of that that's kind of the defining qualifier for being well. Yeah. I think it cannot be given that given too much power. I agree that it's important, but I do feel like it's being made to seem more paramount than it should be because yeah. it also erases, it takes up, well, the economics, because it takes it takes up so much space that you can't have room for anything else. Yeah. But then I guess you do, and that's why people resort to magical thinking. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I think these ideas of wellness sometimes get placed on people as ways to to not rebel against mm-hmm. the the system itself. You know, it's that thing where you, like, you blame, it's like victim blaming, and you are taught in the neoliberal Bible of how to engage in an unfair economy, you're taught to blame yourself and try to pull yourself up and Mm -hmm. make yourself more well in a sick system, right? So, but I also think that, I mean, it's something just on a very practical level that I've been considering in my own life of this relationship between, uh, I don't know, my own economic system and magical thinking. Like, I don't, in some ways, I'll be very, like, forthcoming. Like, I don't want to face up to my own limitations, finance, my financial limitations or my financial mm-hmm. trouble. And so I'll pretend, like, it's going to be, you know, I tell myself yeah. to calm myself down, like, it's going to be okay or I'm fine. It'll, you know, it'll all work out in the end. But but that is a way to not, to put it off and to not True. make actual plans to get, yeah. you know, to get better and, you know, so there's like the, the systemic capitalism and like how to engage with it in a way that like you're holding the system accountable and and you're 
accounting for yourself and your survival, but it's also kind of like the personal, like the macro and the micro, like the personal relationship to money and what, like how much, I guess my question is like, for me, like how much truth, how much truth can I handle and how is magical thinking used as a way to, used as a denial mechanism? Yeah. It sort of becomes escapist rather than. Yeah. Or, or, you know, like, uh, it reminds me of like ancient kind of ways of like, you know, you get a money making, uh, spell put on you or you get some sort of like, you know, magic talent. Which is very popular today. I think there's like entire Instagram, um, Instagram sort of accounts that are devoted to that, to, you know, people run them, and they mm-hmm. pose this inspirational mantras mm-hmm. and that are sort of like rituals, almost like modern day magicians. Yeah, exactly. And like I've said this before, but it's kind of like in some ways those things always feel to me. And I bet I am pretty much like everybody else. Like I don't necessarily do that sort of Internet magic, but um, it feels like that's me walking towards uh, getting better or having a more fun, uh, like relationship to making a solution. It's like mm-hmm. easing into it versus like sitting down with an Excel spreadsheet or a financial planner or whatever, mm-hmm. like, you know, processing something deeply in my journal or something that mm-hmm. kind of seems to me always like it's an introduction to that work, the more serious mm-hmm. work, but then it never really happens. Mm-hmm. So I, it like comes out of an instinct. I think that people have, that's probably good. But it's like this weird combined practical and um, denial mechanism. And that's something that I'm looking at in our culture and in myself. And yeah, I think that relationship to belief is interesting in general. I was I came across this article a few weeks ago um, that talked about a study in which people were trying to figure out if um, there can be a value put on thoughts and prayers. And it, mm. it came out of that trope that happens. Politicians will often talk about whenever something terrible happens, they will tweet that my prayers go to these people mm-hmm. that are experiencing this tragedy. Yeah. Essentially, the study, the way that they ran it is that they put up a small amount of money and mm-hmm. um, they gave people like four or five dollars. And then they asked um, people if they how much of that money they would like to contribute to receive prayers mm-hmm. for their hardship. And I think there were prayers from a priest were worth about $7.17 to the average Christian mm. in need. Mm-hmm. And then some the less exalted Christians were valued at $4.36. And <laughs> mere thoughts from another Christian were cheaper still at $3.27. But the interesting thing is that um, also the atheists and agnostics were involved in the study, and Mm -hmm. they actually were willing to uh, pay money to not have prayers (laughs) about them. (laughs) That's what I'm curious about. Why wouldn't they just want the money themselves? I guess they just find it so distasteful that someone would pray for them. So averse. Yeah. Yeah. My family's like that. Do not pray for me. Argentina, do not do it. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I think it's, I think that is a really great way of looking at this where the reason that they say thoughts and prayers is the, these politicians is probably half that they are actual Christians and they believe that there is an actual thing that will happen if Mm -hmm. you think and pray about something. And the other half is it's a way to not do anything. You know, yeah. in exactly the same way that I'm like, you know, looking at tarot stuff as a way to like solve a problem, but it's also the way that I'm not solving the problem, you know, and it like makes you feel better. And pro- and I don't want to disrespect the idea, the, the belief in God. I mean, that somebody actually believing in God is going to think that there's a great value to, you know, making this prayer. So, yeah, I think we're in such an awkward place with, with religion and, and the way things are working right now. This place between belief and non-belief. Exactly. Yeah, and I think it exists in, in lots of us at the same time, you know, like this weird marble cake of belief and non-belief. Mm-hmm. And really funny. I love that they monetized it. It's so interesting. I agree. And I like that. The, and I feel like it's interesting in particularly applying to kind of politics and people in power, you know, that they're mm-hmm. sort of expected to do both, you know, in a way. Mm. Expe- I guess it's right. like the idea that they're trying to appeal to both sets of people, but it's a much mm-hmm. easier, but I think a prayer is much easier to, because it's so intangible, so you can offer up a prayer. And does it work or not work? We don't know. Right. Whereas, um, right. you know, a 
help in terms of, you know, hard currency is much more tangible and can be accounted for. Yeah. And for those Christians, I mean, they, this is sort of how they play it. Like they do have this deep, you know, pride in their relationship to their own prayer. So, you know, how dare you for saying that my prayer that I'm sending someone is not going to make a big difference. Like Mm -hmm. that's something that they really value, but they also really value their relationship to the NRA. So it's a great way to, they really mean it, you know, in a certain way, even even if you're like a true uh, you're a Republican who's not lying in this moment, like they really mean they don't want to make any differences in gun control and they do want to pray for the victims yeah. like that. Ah, it's so frustrating because like I would love to be like, oh, you guys are lying and you're saying thoughts and prayers to not, mm-hmm. you know, to not do anything about gun violence. But you're just signaling kind of signaling your allegiance to yeah. a particular segment yeah but i think i mean i grew up with mike pence's like actual people from his actual tradition and they really believe it they really believe they're not going to give up their gun and they really think that that prayer you know when they lay hands and they pray like that that's a magical force and that's going to really affect change in that scenario and we just like we didn't pray hard enough and you know it's because of the the end of times is coming that's why this is happening and they really believe that so it's it's rough it's it's like it's not like we're dealing with with the old kind of christians you know and then like the this like modern atheistic culture we're dealing with these like end times christians yeah. which are which is like this total other brand of christian to bring it to the from the a conservative fundamentalist to the uh, new age fundamentalism. This crystal mining article that you found, I think is really important to mention and like in terms of like magic and economics. And I've, I've seen a lot of things about this, that, that the crystal industry makes millions of dollars and is completely unregulated, which is something I think that left, you know, leftist new agey people probably would get really upset about if they understood it. But they don't seem to care. <laughs> I don't know because the crystals are doing magical things, so they're like in, they're not, you know, thought of as being part of an economic system or something. Yeah, I, don't know. I think that's what I'm struggling with. I think on one hand, I really feel I need to want to believe in something, you know, to like because one just wishes to feel like there's something more beyond. Just as a visible reality, which can be so depressing sometimes. I mean, I actually mm-hmm. love Athens right now. Everything's like things. I'm, I'm quite happy to be here. But somehow it inevitably becomes. I don't understand how it becomes so caught up in these like very sordid things. You know. Mm. You know what I mean? Like there's just like there's always like a dark undercurrent. I don't really know what I'm asking for. Can we like be purely no. come together as people and like our higher idealism yeah. or something? But it's like, you know, right. even like with Crystal, it's like, you know, on one hand, there's this beauty, you know, these like such beautiful objects and it does somehow, it's there of nature and you look at them and you sort of, yeah. it's easy to believe that they're doing something nice for you. But we also, but the conditions in which their mind are terrible, you know, the, the right. kids are like dying in mines and it's, you know, it's right. decimating huge chunks of land i think it's like so it's like like the lack of knowledge i don't know how everything yeah. how everything becomes kind of even like a, a like a small sweet belief inevitably becomes in, entangled yes. in like some money making scheme or something that's that's that right goes, yeah i have a response to that that's also geological and i i think this is a nice theme i had a philosophy religion professor that had a big impact on me in my thinking and she talked about how the mystical impulse that comes like that every human has the possible you know a religious a spiritual self and that it's very real in every person and and that impulse comes out maybe in a culture or maybe uh, in an individual act or something. And it's like magma that comes from under the ground and pours out. So like the Buddha's awakening or Jesus's awakening and and Mm -hmm. teachings or whatever, or, you know, some spiritual teacher who was first like, look, this crystal really worked and everybody should get them like that innocence uh, or someone just like engaging with a crystal or whatever, you know, or having a meditation and having a beautiful spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. Um, There is something living to that. There's something powerful and in the moment and living to that. And so in her metaphor, it's like they bust out of the, a mountain you know, they bust out of the volcano. And as the magma comes down, 
it becomes belief and it becomes religion. Mm. So, and it hardens into a system that is like competitive or can be evil. And then at once the religious system hardens, it can be something that people will definitely kill one another over. Right. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think about it a lot. It's like the, the religion and this relationship to some this magical thing is actually like the boiling point of humanity and what we're all about. Well, ideology also, like it's similar. Yeah, but I think that it comes from experience. It comes from an experience that we have, a connection that we have to nature, an intimacy that we have to, to nature that's really important to us. Mm-hmm. Even And even a fundamentalist Christian is having these same experiences, you know, but it gets translated into traditions and translated into even into an economy Economies. You know, and some people are not living from that place at all. And they're just like, you know, selling crystals or whatever and exploiting children. But yeah, I think it's this weird disconnect between one's own personal relationship to to the world and maybe to the divine and then how it gets translated in the world in general and how we live. I think it's just also that the world is so the, all the systems are so complex I imagine not everyone that is obsessed with crystals knows how they come, you know, into yes, into their right. lives, into the shop that they bought them at. Yeah, and it, and we're trying to get better at that, but we're not doing a very good job. Well, so busy, yeah. We trust. I think we trust individuals more than systems or something. You know, that's true. Yeah, and I think everyone is so overwhelmed with information in general and so if they if the information that they receive is about the value of the crystal that's kind Mm -hmm. of enough and they don't who have the time to dig deeper I guess and it's maybe like the thoughts and prayers thing where they're like yeah well I mean I'm gonna do good with this this is gonna help like cleanse me in some way so then my behavior is going to be good so it doesn't matter that it came from something bad Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm it's like thoughts and prayers. It's like, yes, well, we're cleansing that evil instead of doing something about it, you know, by praying on it. I, I mean, it really does speak to the complexity of the crystal economy, the fact that we have no idea and that it's global. And what is, where mm-hmm. is Madagascar and what is the culture like there? And what are the people like economically? What are the people's experience like there? I would probably blow people's minds to know mm-hmm. what that what that's like and I mean and we and also we do know because we see videos and we can connect with those places but it doesn't mm-hmm. it's still disconnected well even though we're we're kind of global in one way everyone is always privy to a very personalized view yeah which right. the algorithm helps shape yes oh yes you know, your circle of friends and so you're in a way even though you're kind of part of this really large scale system but what you see of it, you know, it, it's the same, I guess it's like, you know, it's, you never get an airplane view of things. It's, it's always right. just, uh, within your And vision. you're, yeah. And I think that this is really important. I think this is where this is about capitalism and neoliberalism because of this idea that like, we just trust, we trust the seller or we trust the internet. It relates to um, the keyword book by John Patrick Leary. Um, the section on curation, I think, really woke mm. me up a little bit to this. Um, and it, it just kind of came into my mind. I was like, oh, curation is related to this. And I looked it up and it says that curation had a mostly religious meaning. In the Catholic and Angl- Anglican churches, a curate is a priest. That's right. Yeah. So they had at the local level, they're entrusted with the care Mm-hmm. of souls. The verb curate is a back formation of the noun derived from the Latin curare, to care for, a guardian, an overseer. And then the book talks about um, how curation was used as a way to control. It was given as a, mm. a conscious method of controlling people in the in techno- using technology. So I think that, that that's part of the strategy. I think that's part of the capitalist strategy to separate out the idea of the object from the home, from the origin, from the home, from the behavior mm-hmm. that brought about that object. Well, also the idea of the exotic is important there too, because we do love yeah. things that kind of are not come from of far our away. reality. They come from far away. Yeah, there's a kind of yeah. mystery. It's a, yeah. Yeah, a, a mystical mystery that 
the brain and the pendulum. Yeah, I mean, in a way, we're still involved in the in the early colonial economy of the like 1550s when they were like doing the tea, the the tulip, the the salt, yeah, the sugar, the tobacco. Oh, coffee. Coffee still having in, in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day, um, seriously, we're still there. I mean, yeah. it's exactly the same yeah. thing when you can get the most money from the most exotic product and the way you get it is violence. And, mm-hmm. and you know, how do you control the way people are treated when you're involved in a col- relatively colonial system, which I guess capitalism, global capitalism still is, right? So... Yeah. Yeah, we're it's, we're exactly the same place that we were, except now it's like crystals and prayers and not like, you know, not cumin or whatever in the same way. Um, did you know nutmeg used to cost like more than anything? It used to cost more than gold in, no. the, in the like 1600s. Yeah, nutmeg was a huge deal. <laughs> huh. I wonder what yeah. dishes could, I feel like I don't even use it in that many dishes sometimes if I'm trying to I know. Something. Doesn't it make you want to use it? Yeah. The history of nutmeg. I'll give a presentation next time. We can do a food episode. Yeah, we will. We've been wanting to. Mm -hmm. Curation doesn't have to be a bad word. I mean, food is very curated these days as well. Yeah, yeah. It's like, and I I find it really disturbing that it came from this origin of like care, you know, of religious care, of spiritual help, Yeah. you know, And, and now it's kind of used, it can be used, it doesn't have to be used as a way to take people's choice, to take people's power from them, um, mm-hmm. to condescend to some extent and say, oh, you don't know, you don't understand the way the world works. I'm going to show you this and just trust me, you know, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it what you want it to be. And, you know, like referring to the couch stuff from the last episode, it's like, I guess people are fine with that. I think they've been lulled into trusting the three couches and they don't have any desire to, to or the effort, I don't know, to go forth and make their own choices. So yeah, curation as a way to, you know, take away buyer power and to flatten experience, I think. Right. And one of the biggest um, experiences that are curated is, I think, media consumption and mm-hmm. uh, the monolith that is often responsible as the Facebook conglomerate, which includes Instagram, mm-hmm. actually, they're the same company. Mm-hmm. And so there was something interesting happening with uh, Elizabeth Warren um, yeah. and the false Zuckerberg ad. So what did she do? She essentially was a false statement about Mark Zuckerberg and that he was endorsing Trump for president. And then she immediately kind of corrects herself and says that it's not true, but highlighting the fact that Facebook allows for basically for falsehoods to become ads and to be served yeah. to different people. Right. In political, in the political context that they can, that they, they made it okay to lie Yeah. for political purposes. So I, I mean, I can't believe that her people are pretty smart to make Elizabeth Warren troll, <laughs> which is like the let, she's like an anti troll, but mm-hmm. the way they did this was like, using the troll system like very trumpian like fake news troll troll bot powers to make a very you know antitrust anti-bullshit elizabeth warren statement and uh, i'm really impressed with it yeah and they do have a facebook does have a policy that bans full statements but politics advertising is exempt for some reason yeah, what the fuck? Isn't this weird? Why would they do that? I mean, that was the whole fucking problem with the last election, that everything was fake, and yeah. it was through that media. I mean, to just, to then just make it okay and to just say, like, yeah, well, everything on Facebook is a lie. Uh, so that's fine. I mean, it could be also, like, a way for them to, um, to kind of prevent further troubles because you know they say well it's a system where everyone is responsible for what they're saying we're not responsible you know they're really trying to you know they're really acting as um as the highway and you know and who drives on a highway with which car it is their choice you know they're Mm. merely providing the road yeah so people are driving in their lie cars and they don't care yeah exactly yeah like they're like we're not the arbiter of this fight okay yeah hmm I guess that's fine. I mean, everyone I know doesn't really look to Facebook for any sort of guidance, but in terms of what the truth is and isn't. But I guess I, I can't say that about the rest of America, which is pretty disturbing. 
Yeah. No, I think it's, I think that's an extremely kind of irresponsible thing for them to do to know that everyone is using this as a way. Who would be the truth determiner? I mean, also like Facebook is not, you know, it's like not a legal structure. It's not. Yeah. Um, I don't think they have, you know, they don't really, you, you'd have to have an ethics panel, I think, to also yeah. be able to tell which is a truth and which is a half truth. And which is, I mean, it's so like rhetorically subtle in a way sometimes. Mm. And I think also that's why. I think we just have to remember that it should remind everyone, all of us, that we need to kind of just double check. I think all of it is just everything we're talking about. It's essentially that basically the responsibility is on the person to really kind of fact check what they choose to believe in. Because once you believe in something, it's kind of irreversible in a way because it sort of becomes Mm. a part of you. So you really have Mm. to weigh different ideas and make a decision consciously, you know, rather than kind of be guided by emotions. I think emotion just, I'm so emotional and, and it's so hard for me. And I guess mm-hmm. I'm just trying to understand how one thing. Yeah. That reminds me of, I was re-looking at this Nur Yal article from, or this writer of the book Hooked. And, uh, mm. and he's suggesting how to unhook from tech, from tech. Mm-hmm. It's a nice article. And the, he also wrote the, the definitive book on how to get right. hooked on tech. Right. So now he's like apologizing and trying to help us unhook because he knows the mechanisms that technology Mm -hmm. and the, uh, you know, technology industry is using to addict us. Right. Mm -hmm. Really fun article because the writer is kind of like you said, like very reactive. And this writer like procrastinates a lot and doesn't know what to do. And and uh, the big argument that the writer makes or the uh, unhooked guy or the hooked guy makes is to, is to say, and I'm not sure what I believe about this, uh, but it's to say it's not technology's fault. Yes, they are manipulating you. Yes, they're affecting your dopamine intake. Um, you are addicted to some extent, but you also have free will and you can make choices about your time and about how you use technology. And he gives suggestions for how to engage with technology in a way more that is more conscious and aware of things. But he doesn't say like I have said many times on this podcast that, you know, technology is insidious and it's getting into our brains and it, you know, we really have to be extreme with it. Um, He says things about how we can use it to our benefit and we can control our brains to some extent and we can make choices. Mm -hmm. And I believe that and I don't believe it, you know. Um, Like I said, like I think that there's this thing where we go to it with good intention, like going to the tarot reader with good intention to then do other work or do make other choices, Mm -hmm. but then we don't end up doing it. Absolutely, yeah. You get sucked in. You do. You lose awareness. You lose you lose the sense of self kind of and you know, you just like become Yeah. And and then he talks about that. He says that the uh, notifications function of of a lot of these apps was like the point like he they want us to be pushed along by their notifications and just go deeper and deeper into the internet and phone and not you know make choices kind of like when you're in a shopping mall they have a path that they want you to to walk through and music Mm -hmm. that is supposed to be really exciting and kind of confusing and so you then forget where you are or what you want to do in the first place Mm -hmm. so anyway one of his suggestions that i thought was really nice except i did want to discuss it with you because i don't know is um time boxing (laughs) and he talked about scheduling just like every second of your life. Oh my God. Sure. I know I can hear like every one of my friends getting mad about this, but um, scheduling every second of your life to include, you know, ambiguity to include uh, making decisions to include meditation and, you know, chores, but also, you know, to get your life done. So the notifications that are coming in are productive notifications and not, you know, random, like, you know, whatever, <laughs> look at this shopping notification there. So I had this idea of, uh, having an ambiguity time boxing situation where it's like, it's like not an app because I don't believe in that, but like you have some sort of notification on your phone or on your computer that like asks you to come to a moment every day or for 20 minutes and consider the ambiguities of a certain issue or, you know, ponder mm. these very, ch- kind of like what we're doing. Like, yeah, I was going to say, can people just put in a notification to listen to the podcast? Okay. Yeah, they Maybe. certainly can, but I, oh, please, I really, please, if you're listening, just, just, you know, set a notification. 
if nothing else. Um, but, but no, I think that like each individual, each of us as a person has to kind of come up to our own, uh, moral quandaries and these, these questions. And it takes a while to consider it. It takes a while to work through it. And it doesn't feel as constructed as like being on the internet or being, you know, on your phone. It doesn't even feel as constructed Mm -hmm. as having a conversation. It's Mm -hmm. just like sitting there and looking at this crystal that you bought and really being like, where did it come from? What happened? You know, what's Mm -hmm. happening when it's in my hand for real, you know, researching the objects that you're sitting near and that you're dreaming about and really, you know, as a consumer, I guess, but also, you know, just, this is like leaving some time to be a very curious person about yourself and about, yeah, what's happening. What surrounds you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'll I'll add, there's like a really nice uh, part of what he was talking about, but I, something else I've also heard in Buddhism where a lot of times when we're really reactive and we're using technology in a very, kind of sleepwalky way, it's because we're avoiding something that's emotional. It's, we're avoiding something that's internal or we're avoiding something mm-hmm. that's external or a pain that we don't want to feel. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that to become more conscious, it's really hard because you have to face up to some difficult things and certainly ambiguity. We have to like schedule time to make conscious decisions, you know, and to sit with things that are uncomfortable to sit with this is what i propose i don't like the uh, time boxing idea i've tried putting notifications on my phone to do things um, both useful and useless yeah and i've just learned i've learned to ignore them or i will do Uh, it remind me tomorrow actually right now i have about five notifications that like yeah around 2 p.m. <laughs> you know it includes i know i don't like <laughs> notifications i just see this is my problem is that I I think anyone who is rebellious in any way, which I think is a nice thing about most of us, it's like we love saying no to that sort of thing, you know? And then, oh, yeah. I mean, I have some of my favorite friends are just like, no, I just want to be spontaneous. I want to, you know, do what I want to do when I want to do it. And they and they're some of the more, pro- this person I'm thinking of is one of the most productive people I know, and they're mm-hmm. totally against planning ahead, you know? So I don't know. I'm not sure I know what the right thing is. I do know that the notifications from the phone, from the outside, I'm not sure if that's the way. I actually turned off all my notifications. So now, but sometimes it works, but sometimes I just compulsively check it (laughs) to see if I got anything new. So it's, it's, uh, but what I did like something about that, some of the suggestions that you made is um, the language that surrounds technology i think he used the term i think he was sort of arguing against using this very dire terms like addiction or Mm, hijacking you know and i do think there's something helpful about that because we do he mentioned that um there's an element of learned helplessness when we use such violent Mm. terms that seem Mm. like we're unable to withstand the influence of these objects or these apps because you know that sort of giving over your agency as, you know, as someone that has free will, which I think we do to an extent, Um, at least with certain aspects of our lives. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I'm not very good at not following my impulses, but with some things I can. Yeah. So I think that's helpful to just change the language a little bit um, to something mild. Yeah. That we have freedom. Like you still have freedom. Uh, You, like, even if we have a brain that has a tendency to go down certain pathways you know, we still can talk to ourselves and can have dialogue with ourselves about what we're doing and what choices we're making, you know, like, you know, even the, even the most addicted person is not just like totally screwed. You know what I mean? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's like the whole point of the recovery story is that like, it's, it doesn't have to be an addiction because an addiction is way worse. It's, it's interesting. I like the idea of getting away from it, but I also, or like in general all the way, but I like, the question of asking yourself what the discomfort is that is causing the denial and then sitting with that discomfort. I think that idea has been the most productive one that I've come across in the last couple of years of like denial is a function of discomfort. And the reason that we're denying something and I think technology and neoliberalism want to serve us in our denial mm-hmm. of our lives and our issues. 
Like the reason we want to deny something is because it's very meaningful to us. Oh, yeah. I think we just all want to be loved and comforted and know that we're going to have food tomorrow and no right. one's going to take away the house. There was a, a nice argument I heard about um, like our social species. It's probably from the social book, but it's about like when we have this feeling of discomfort and um, discomfort with ambiguity, but probably coming from a denial of a deeper feeling that we're having, Mm -hmm. like we seek out biologically, we seek out things that gave us comfort in early childhood. So this like feeling of being heard and seen in an exciting way, that comes from like early childhood with a parent. Like you said something fun and then they responded and or like somebody sang a fun song and you were delighted by it. Like but what if that's nobody's what we're doing going. that? No, what if you still right. want that and no one is doing that? Well, that's what the phone is doing. The phone is yeah. kind of lighting up your neurological <gasps> kind of It's pretending to be a parent. <laughs> We all are children of our foes. It is, dude. Like, that's why they're doing it. And then the other part is, like, why do people eat when they're disc- they have discomfort? You know, possibly it's because we were given care by a parent through food. And so we relate food in this very kind of biological, simple way. We relate food to comfort. And so we go to food. Yeah. And then, like, the buying stuff, you know, is, like, preparing for the future. I'm, I'm not okay now, but I'll be okay in the future if I have this thing. And, yeah, I think I think I like that very much. I think that that's, like, a very compassionate way to look at avoidance, coping, mm-hmm. you know. And the phone just like works in perfectly with that, right? It does, it does. So we're all, yeah, we all just want to be cared for. And like I say, I, we're supposed to care for ourselves, you know, like our own pets. Right. And, you know, and seek care from others and care for others. And But, yeah, it's super challenging. Life is so hard. Yeah, it is. I mean, we have one another. I think that's, that's a nice thing. There's one thing that I really like about Athens. Uh, there's a kind of different relationship to public and private, which I think is connected mm. to that because I think one of the reasons why we feel sometimes so despondent in the West, let's say, is because everyone <laughs> is a bit isolated, you know, just in that kind of the pace of life is very fast and, you know, yeah. we, we don't linger together. You know, we make plans and we like walk fast from job to train to car and and here it's a bit well for once you know they're just there's just a really strong cafe culture so there's like a lot of people at any given moment are sitting in the street like and the way that um the chairs are set up is that you know you're not facing each other in a table mm. but rather the, the chairs are facing the street so you're sort of sitting side by side so everyone is sitting side by side mm. talking to each other but looking out to the street mm. you know so there's a kind of awareness of the space around you yeah. uh, you're watching people and they're watching you and also there's like these little things like you know the like the trash can in LA is a funny thing like everyone had their own, every house had their own trash can and it's like faux pas to throw trash into this trash can that's not your house you know but here there are these like sort of public trash cans you know that people go through and and there's like a kind of I don't know there's like something nice about the communal trash can but also there's something phone related that's very interesting um so here it's very popular for people to instead of sending text messages to record voice notes oh yeah and I guess this is also in Italy somebody told me that um that that uh, and someone in LA said that he had a friend staying with him from Italy and he was just always receiving voice notes and playing them and recording them and it's kind of mm. an amazingly public uh, way of communicating you know it's because mm. we kind of um usually when you type it's very secretive you know it's very private and the people read it in mm-hmm. private but when you record it obviously people can hear what you're saying around you and then they can also hear yeah. when you play it back so I, I, it's interesting i feel like there's a kind of more con- there's sort of more interconnectedness that comes from that the trash can yeah. and the voice notes mm-hmm. <laughs> the performance at the trash can yeah so yeah. loud yeah. yeah, interesting. And people don't even care. Like, they don't even care that people can hear their voice now that yeah. they're listening to. I know. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I mentioned there's probably some private things that they don't disclose, but I'm, like, amazed at how um, at how often that happens that people just do that. I enjoy it. I've learned the way of the voice note in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, yes. send, we send them to each other. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a narrative, if you have a narrative to tell, it really works well in a voice note. And I like that, you know, it's like a little radio play that you can send to someone. Exactly. There's a difference between typing. I think we're very much in the world of the type right now, you know, reading, typing and just the the written word is different from 
oral communication. You know, there's yeah. something there's something funny that was happening when Gutenberg Press came about, where people were afraid. I think we've talked about this also in some podcast episode, but people were afraid that um, memory was going to be lost or like oral storytelling. Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, maybe a valid fear because it's, there's something different that happens. It's more spontaneous. You're less composed when you're speaking. It's right. It's less considered. It's less formal. I feel very into like all the different formats, though. You know, like mm, I feel like true. I have a completely different self. I even feel like I have a different self in social situations with like three people versus social situations where like there are, the public is available, like around. Like there's certain way that ways that my brain works with like a small a small group of people that I know. There's like talking to in my current field work and in like all of the social work stuff that I've been doing there's so much of me being required to communicate deeply with people while surrounded by hundreds of people this is just like my new thing I'm supposed to do all the time and it's the most difficult work I can possibly do to have to not just like be fun or funny or like you know a citizen um around hundreds of people which I'm kind of used to doing from teaching or from being in the city, you know, like talking to strangers for whatever reason. But like now I have to talk about very intense, deep things or process a very serious moment in a sea of people. And it's like, you know, it's like this disconnect between the like public, private, intimate, non-intimate is very interesting and cool. Like when I get good at it, it's very interesting. Like I can kind of it's like a dial that I can dial up and down in my level of intimacy and comfort. Um, but yeah, I'm not built for that. <laughs> I'm definitely built for like this, you know, like a one-on-one, one-on-one yeah. or one-on-thousands, but like an in- yeah. a level of intimacy is very important for me. Yeah. May we all have the level of intimacy that is appropriate to us. <laughs> yes. And let, let us all know what it is, honestly. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. Amen. Yeah. Uh, Pray for that. Amen. I have some things about magical thinking, just like a definition of it. I don't know if it's like not useful at this point, but so it says that magical thinking from Freud uh, tends to be greater when you feel a loss of control or face external events that feel anxiety provoking. Mm -hmm. Um, So people use magical thinking most when it's something that is very intensely emotional to them. This is kind of in a more psychological framework. So yeah, here's some suggestions from the, psychology internet so they're they're saying that the way to manage magical thinking if you feel like you do a lot of that and i think i mean i was talking about doing that with my finances but it was it says uh just to plan ahead and um think about situations you might find yourself in that could be anxiety provoking so it's much easier to manage magical thinking before it starts than disrupt your pattern once it's begun. So like anybody who has a phobia, that's kind of a version of magical thinking where you're like, if I do this, then this will definitely happen. So planning ahead and having a plan for when you start to get worried about something. Mm-hmm. Devise a plan based on what a reasonable person might do in the same situation. <laughs> 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 who are they? I don't know though because like also you have to it's hard because you have to catch yourself you don't I don't know it's like you need to well, tell, right. someone to tell you if you are engaging that's right I mean one of the ways that I I uh, I had one phobia that uh, I have managed recently it was a really I'll, I'll admit it it was a it was an escalator phobia that I developed in the city for some bizarre reason and um I it was kind of interesting to me because I never really had a for real phobia and then I this one just like popped up and I was like hmm interesting what is this so I looked it up and I started to study what to do for it. And I think I cured myself of it, but it had to do with this, thinking about it ahead of time and then like dropping into your body and noticing like if you're feeling anxious, like starting a breathing process with yourself before you get to your triggering thing and like checking in. And then it's literally exactly the same thing, like telling myself, no, you're just going to like go down this escalator and you're not going to fall and it's going to be fine. And you're going to breathe a lot and you're going to make it through actually. And like having this other more reasonable self, like talking to me, it worked. Yeah. See it realistically. Very interesting. So it's like, I don't know. I think that that can be applied to lots of things, you know, just like the, the, the worry creates this heightened sense of discomfort and then right out of the worry comes an idea of, of magic 
that will be like a bomb so that you don't have to worry about it. But the solution is not to stop there. It's then to keep going and think, no, that's one solution. That's not the best solution. Imagining that you're going to topple down the escalator or whatever. It's like, actually, that's probably not going to happen. But you know what? You're feeling anxious about that. And that's the, you know, it's like you help yourself through it. And I think that can be applied to like making choices about finances and making choices about the government. (laughs) (laughs) Like we, we don't have to just react and or just like imagine that you know the world is ending right now because of all this or we're in this like time loop where things are you know we're in this alternate universe where everything's fucked it's like Mm -hmm. yes we're in a really hard time there's a lot of transformation you know but but we're not necessarily gonna topple down the escalator you know we don't have to um just because we fear that it will happen or something terrible do you know what i mean yeah it's a it's a big it's a big if, but I have to believe that. And certainly if bad things are not going to happen, like Greta, Greta Thunberg, like we need her rational, you know, her rationality. And I think that's like a really interesting thing. She's showing up saying, Hey, we're fucked. Wake up. We got to do something, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it, it reminds me of this, like Elizabeth Warren thing of like, yes, this is a fucked up system. We need to change it. Let me prove to you that it's fucked up. Like there's this new, very, conscious self that I am noticing in in some individuals in the public world where they're not reacting they're like responding very soberly to the intense situation but like not in a completely anxious freaked out way do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and they're giving they're giving me hope yeah well I think it's a it's a really good point to end on um as we move into the week ahead and we move thoughtfully and slowly Hyper, while also being hyper aware of our magical thinking. We can enjoy it. Paying attention to marble. And yeah, we can dream of marble and, you know, just like keep our feet on the ground. And exactly, exactly. Yeah. And we are glad to be back on air and we thank you for joining us once again. Yeah. And we'll be back again. Um, send us messages, follow us on Instagram and tell your friends to listen in. That's right. Ciao. Bye-bye. We're away in our respective countries. Bye-bye.